0: Trees or statues, but any, anything that we take in our heart that's, that, that should be only for the, for the, for the Lord God, that's, that's, uh, that's simple. So um, that's a good reminder from the first commandment. If you have your scriptures, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 today. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses nine, uh, 29 through 34. So Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, as we continue going through Mark here um, last week. We saw Christ who was in the synagogue, and he, he, uh, he heals a man, or actually exercises a demon from a man last week, and so now we're going to see what happens next on that same day. So um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at this. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You again for Christ. We know that apart from Him, we certainly would have uh, no standing before You, and so we, we praise You that we can come, and we can come boldly to You today, and we can ask Uh, for your Holy Spirit to give us grace, to give us illumination, that you would help our eyes, spiritual eyes, to behold the things of Christ and to also take great comfort in the fact that our Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he's king over Satan, he's king over disease, he's king over all things in this earth that are evil and that we are uh, on the right side in in, in a sense, Lord. So give us grace to behold that and to to trust in you and to, to cling to you in all of our battles in this life, Lord. So in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, verse 29 through 34, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about it. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And so we're going to break this up into two sections here. Number one, you have Christ going into this house. We'll break that up. That's section A or 1, however you want to say it. And then the second section is when evening comes and everybody comes to that door of the house where Christ is at. Okay. But here's the thing. So last week, if you remember, what Christ does is He's in the synagogue. And the synagogue is the place where everybody would have been on a Saturday. And so they're all there. And Christ, of course, he causes a demon to come out of this man. Well, right afterwards in verse 29, you have, in a sense, there's a contrast here because he goes from the public arena to the private arena. And he goes from uh, casting out a demon. And now we're going to see that he's actually going to heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law from, from a fever. Um, and so I want to say this, though. What we're going to see here is, is what, and what we have been seeing is that Jesus... As King of Kings, Jesus is systematically going through and destroying and upsetting the realm of the wicked one. Okay? And so the reason that's important, if you go back to, let's say, the garden, you know, one of the things that Adam was supposed to do in the garden, he was supposed to be a a representative of God on earth in the garden, he was supposed to keep out all evil from the garden. And so he does the opposite, right? When evil comes into the garden, rather than destroying that evil, he succumbs to that evil, he gives into that evil, and the rest is history. Same thing happens when the, when the Israelites go into Canaan. The Israelites were to go in, and if you remember, God says to go into Canaan and wipe out everything, decimate everything. Why? Because these lands are, this is an evil land. They worship false gods, they're doing evil practices, they're sacrificing their children to Moloch. they're doing all kinds of evil. So go in there, the promised land, you as Israelites are called to protect the promised land from evil and to wipe out all evil. And they go, and they do okay for a while, but then they succumb. They give in to it. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Well, here Christ comes as the second Adam, and so when he comes, he goes through and he's disrupting the powers of darkness. He's not going to give into it. Remember when Satan was trying to compromise Christ in the wilderness and trying to make him bow down to him and do all kinds of things. Why was he doing that? Because he was doing the same thing to he was trying to do the same thing to Christ that he did to Adam and Eve. He was trying to do the same thing to Christ that he did to the Israelites in Canaan. But Christ, of course, overcomes that. And as Christ is going, as we go through his life, what's amazing about this is that these episodes with demons are actually only found in the first part of Mark. When we get to the second part of Mark, you know, 10 years from now, um, you're not going to have any more action with the demons, at least in the gospel of Mark. It's very interesting why that happens. You know, so in other words, what Mark is trying to do from the outset is to demonstrate that Christ is coming and he's setting up shop here on earth. And we see it the same. We're going to see this as we go through. So I don't want to get too carried away on this. But it's a great demonstration of what happens when the gospel goes forth. Demons scatter. They fly. Okay, things get upset. Alright, so that's what we're going to have. So verse 29, immediately after, well, after what? Well, after the synagogue. So they're in the synagogue, Christ exercises this demon, the demon flies out, you know, and then verse 28, the verse before that, immediately the news about him spread everywhere. Verse 29, though, and immediately after they they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Um, Now, think about this. Remember, Simon is Simon Peter, okay? Remember, Simon Peter is the one that gave Mark his information for the gospel of Mark. Because Mark's not, not an apostle, Peter isn't. So he's getting his information for Peter. However, remember when when uh, Peter is out there fishing, and Christ goes and he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him, and they leave their nets and they follow him. And so sometimes people can misinterpret that passage to make it seem like whenever you're called to Christ, you gotta leave your family, you gotta leave your kids, you gotta leave your job, you gotta leave everything. Well, we're seeing right here that that is explicitly not the case in Peter's life. You know, it's funny, like with the Roman Catholics, they're like, hey, you know, we believe that priests have to be celibate, and yet Peter is supposedly the first pope, right? And he's not celibate. He's got a wife, and he doesn't leave his wife. He's still in the house. Side issue. The point is, though, is this. okay, when When we're talking about following Christ, there is a sense in which these, these guys were called, this is kind of like a call to ministry for these guys. So in a sense, it is different. They do leave their jobs. But for the most of us, for, for in a sense, for all of us, nobody's called to leave your family. Even if you're married to an unbeliever. Paul says, don't leave your, your spouse if your spouse is an unbeliever. Rather, maybe God will use you to convert your spouse. And so he doesn't say, you know, nowhere in Scripture is it like, Okay, once you become a Christian, leave your family. And I'm saying that because, you know, I don't want you to misinterpret some passages here like other people have throughout church history, okay? So here we have Peter. They're going into this home. Uh, but check this out. So here's the thing. This is still the Sabbath, all right? So this is still on, for them, it was Saturday. And it's a, it's a quiet scene. They're inside. It's a, it's, look at verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Now, when you see the word fever here, um, in those days, you know, when we, when we hear of someone having a fever, usually it indicates that they have something else going on. A fever is a symptom of something else. If, you have, you know, if, if, if I have a fever and a cough, you're like, oh, it's COVID. If I have a fever, you know, three years ago, if I have a fever and a cough, oh, it's the flu or it's a cold, right? And so what do we say here? In these ancient days, they saw a fever as an illness in itself, Okay? And so what you're going to have here, when they come and they talk to Jesus about, um, about the, about the mother law verse 31, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. There's a few things going on here. Okay? Number one, notice that when she's healed, she's healed completely. Number two, think about it. Christ here, unlike what he does whenever he exercises the demon, in the synagogue to, to exercise the demon... He says something verbally, and the demon flies out. In Mark, what happens is, is that whenever there is a healing... So in Mark, and this is just in the Gospel of Mark, but whenever there is a healing, it's always done by physical touch. So this is one, two, three, four, five, five different places in the Gospel of Mark where Christ heals with physical touch. But when he casts out demons, it's verbally. Now in other places, actually in Luke, you'll see that, that um, in this episode, when, when Christ is at his mother-in-law's house... He he heals his mother-in-law by rebuking the fever. So it's not to say they're, they're it's not contradictory. It's to give us, I guess, in a sense, a fuller picture or fuller understanding of what's going on. Um, and so remember, what this is showing is just like we saw last week when Christ is teaching and they're like, wow, where is he getting all this authority, all this power? This is amazing. Well, then he casts out a demon and now they're like, whoa, where does he get all this authority and power? This is amazing. Right? Because at first it was like, this is an amazing teacher, but now it's like, wow, he can even cast out demons. But now when you see him actually rebuking fevers and he you actually see him um, doing things to heal people, things like that. What you're seeing is that Christ is truly Lord over the physical creation itself, over the demonic over the demonic realm. He's He's Lord over everything, and as He goes around, you're seeing this more and more. And so that's what's going on. But notice right after she is um, healed. And this is no accident, but what does she do right after this? She waited on them. She waited on them. She served them. Your your translation might say serve. That's probably a better way to say it. She served them. Now, you might think there's nothing to this, but there most definitely is something to this because what you see is that there is, uh, in a sense, a bigger picture going on because here's what's meant to be conveyed. Okay? When Christ heals me, when Christ heals you, not physically, And we're going to see this as we go on, that these physical miracles are in and of themselves supposed to point to something else. But when Christ heals us spiritually, when He regenerates us, when He gives us a new heart, when He causes us to to see things in a way that we've never seen before, when we realize that Christ is the Messiah, Christ is my Savior, and I follow Him, and I leave my sin, all these things, right? The impetus for the Christian is to now serve God and serve God's people. And look at this. So I'm going to, just to... Demonstrate that this isn't just you know out of nowhere. Turn turn with me to uh, chapter, uh, 9, 33 through 37. chapter nine, verses thirty three through thirty seven. Chapter nine, verses thirty three through thirty seven. Now this is the disciples. They're coming in verse thirty three. They they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Same phrase, same word, same idea. Okay, In order to follow Christ, rather than to be concerned about being the greatest of all, greatest over all, right? we should be concerned with being a servant to everyone. And of course, we see that beautifully personified by Christ, perfectly personified. That's exactly what Christ, and we'll see this in a minute. But he goes on. Um, taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me. Uh, excuse me, yeah, does not receive me, but him who sent me. So you're seeing here that it's about serving. If you go to chapter 10, one chapter over, verse 43 and through 45. Okay, so Christ tells the disciples, you're called to be servants of all. But then, verse 43, but it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant." Same phrase. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And you're like, okay, yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. And then Christ goes beyond this because Christ says, for even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see this same idea in Philippians. When we're at the nursing home, we preach on Philippians. Philippians 2. Let me read this. Don't worry about turning there. You can if you want. But Philippians 2. It's just uh, a few uh, phrases here. Uh, Paul is talking about, hey, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, right? More important than yourselves. So you're looking around, especially amongst. I mean, it's hard. Listen, we all know, and this has been a fantastic. We all, know, I mean, and I'm not just saying this, but I think we all know that this is such a blessed church with the people here, right? But there will be times because we are, uh, we are in the flesh and we are humans and all that, right? There will be times when we might be offended by something right or we might not just me i mean some you know we might i don't know something comes up you know it could be anything and it's like man now i start to consider myself a little better than the other person but what paul is doing here especially when he's writing this letter is he's saying there's never any excuse as a christian to not consider each other as greater than ourselves because why? That's look what he goes on to say. Um, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the beauty of being a Christian, right? If there wasn't this this basis in Christ, this would be just moralism. We'd just be preaching like secular ethics, you know? Uh, hey, you know, you should just be nice to everybody because that's the right thing to do. Well, that's not enough. The reason you should do this is because this is what Christ himself does. Christ himself came as a servant. Christ himself came, remember, to wash his, the feet of his disciples. And they're freaking out. They're like, wait a minute. Um, I remember reading one guy, and he was saying, can you imagine that, that the God of the universe comes to your house, knocks on the door, you open the door, and it's, it's, it's the God of the universe in flesh. And the first thing you want to do is worship Him and serve Him and feed Him and everything. But He says, no, I've come to wash your feet. And what would you, I mean, think about how, what would you say, right? You do like Peter, no, you can't wash my feet, not at all. No, you can't. And then what does Christ say? You can't have any part with me if you don't let me wash your feet. He says, okay, well, not my feet, only all, you know, my head too, my whole body. Right, but the point is, is that there's something very humiliating, something very condescending when you're talking about the God of the universe coming to earth to lay down His life as a ransom for many, but in the process, He comes as a servant, as an example. So, so that we can look at Him and realize, okay, this is how I ought to live. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, all who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or utilized or, or asserted. In other words, Christ isn't like, you know what, I'm God. I'm not going down there to save a bunch of clumps of dirt who are rebellious and wicked and evil and they're going to try to throw me off a cliff when I preach to them. I'm not going down there. I'm going to stay here where all the angels are worshiping me. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no evil. I'm not going down there. But he doesn't. So in other words, if Christ himself has the attitude of, I am going to serve these people, not because they deserve it. No. So we look around and we're like, I'll serve you as long as you deserve it. Paul's like, no. No. Christ says, no, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the world does, right? They say, oh, treat others as, you you know, the world always likes to use Jesus' phrase until the world gets offended, and then they turn around and they no longer are tolerant and everything else. Well, with us, it shouldn't be that way. Um, Now, I'm not saying tolerant when it comes to sin or anything, but you know what I'm saying. Like, we are called to serve each other. You see... Uh, the mother in law here peter 's mother in law doing exactly that and so there 's something going on here it 's not to say you can build a whole doctrine out of this scene but it is to say that this is very commonplace in scripture and you see this in our own lives that 's how it should be right once i 'm saved once Christ heals me my first my first mindset should be okay now i now i 'm going to go i 'm going to go serve God and serve god 's people and so that 's what you see the mother in law doing here uh, and so that that 's kind of the, the first part and you can imagine I mean Peter telling Mark. How cool would that have been just to hear Peter recount this whole scene to Mark and say, yeah, you know, right after that we went to the house and, and, you know, my mom-in-law was sick and she had a fever. And then remember, in Luke it says Jesus rebukes the fever, which implies that Jesus has some kind of command. And they did see a lot of times in those days, they did see fever as some kind of mark of um, um, Satan or something like that. Martin Luther thought a lot in that term. You know, if he was sick, he was like, oh, it's definitely the devil. Um, So, you know, there's some truth to that, but there's some untruth there, too. So that's another story. But anyway, so that's the first scene. And then from there, look what happens. When evening came, in verse 32, when evening came, after the sun had set, what does that mark, by the way? When evening comes, in this society, that marks the new day. The Sabbath is now over. So right when the Sabbath ends, after the sun had set, because for them it's, it's sunset to sunset, for us it's usually sunrise to sunrise, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. So why did they wait? because the Sabbath is over. It was actually illegal to travel anywhere on the Sabbath in that culture. They had something like, and we'll talk about this when we get to the Sabbath, but there was something like 1,300 additional laws that they had created on top of um, just the the Sabbath. And so it was, in a sense, it was overbearing. It was a mess, you know. The point is, though, they are in a sense, um, and you see how controversial Christ is, because Christ goes in there and he's healing people. These people are like, no, we're going to wait because we don't want to get fined or in trouble or whatever. Well, they do wait, and then when they start coming in you see the phrase where it said they began bringing to him that tense there for that phrase means it was a constant stream of people coming to jesus christ now there's a few things here to think about okay um number one why are they all gathering at this door well go back to verse 28 the news about him spread everywhere so when one day, in one afternoon, right, people are getting the word out, and they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have things to go viral, they didn't have YouTube. So they're communicating word of mouth, you know, this man came into the synagogue, this man had a demon, he casted out the demon, and now all the people are streaming to this house, they're packing in this house. We know, I mean, verse 33, and the whole city had gathered at the door, it says. The whole city. Now, if you think about the the, the despair here, it is... Um, if you go to a third world country, it's similar in a sense, because, you know, in our, in our day, you know, we have doctors, you go to like a doctor's office and people are waiting in line. It's almost like some doctor's offices, the whole city is gathered at the door of this. You're waiting in line forever. Um, but here in this culture, they have no doctors. They have no medicine. They have no hope. And they hear about this guy who can do miracles. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I would be at the door, right? If you hear about this and you're like, Hey, I'm going to be at the door. And I have, you know, like a little stomach stuff going on. I I would be at that door. So you can imagine, everybody is there. That's human nature, right? We're flocking to where this guy is because we want help. Especially if you can't get help from anywhere else. And so what you have is this though, when the whole city comes now, you notice in verse 32 it says exactly what Christ was doing here. He was, uh, they were bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. So I'm going to give you a list here of In the gospel of Mark alone, you're going to see Christ uh, heal fever. We already saw that. Leprosy, paralysis, a withered hand, a flow of blood, a deaf and dumb person, two blind men, and a dead girl. You're going to to see Christ do all of these miracles. He's going to heal all of these people from the demon-possessed to people who have fever. Right? From, From the top of the spectrum to the lower end of the spectrum. And in the process, though, here's the thing. How are we to interpret this, right? Because when Christ comes, notice Christ never, and I mentioned this last week, you will never see Christ going and starting some kind of healing campaign. You're not going to, Christ is not in that business. Christ's main concern is not to heal people. It's more like as Christ is going along, His concern is to teach. If you see what we'll talk about next week, look at verse 38. Whenever um, they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Why? Because they want you to do miracles. They love this stuff. Look what Jesus says. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is what what I came for. I didn't come to do miracles. He does miracles in response to the needs of the people as they come and they press with needs upon them. So he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is able to do those things, and he always does these things. But the point is is that sometimes when we're reading this, and I'm saying sometimes, a lot of times, right, Is I, when we're on the Navajo Reservation, man, they would have healing campaigns at every church like every week. They'd have these big tents and, you know, it's like so-and-so's coming, come and get healed. And it's like, you know, if, that was, if it was successful, if it was effective, you wouldn't have to have them every week because you'd be healed. If that was effective, right, these guys would be going into the children's hospitals and healing people. It's not It's not real. <laughs> Alright? It doesn't mean that God can't heal people. He does heal people. But it's to say what Christ is doing here. See, a lot of times people think, oh, Christ's main objective when He came was to heal people. That is not at all what we're seeing here. Okay? Christ comes and He does heal people. And His power is so great, verse 34, and He healed many Notice that he healed them. So they come and he actually does heal them. But look at this. at The last part of this where it says um, he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. All right, so a few things are going on here. You're going to see this a lot. Why does Jesus not want these demons to speak? Why does he not want them to speak? Because you would think, hey, why not, right? Go and tell everybody. But you're actually in a few places, Christ is going to do this, and, uh, and there's really usually three reasons why people put out there, and I think, I think they're sufficient I think they, they, they are true. Um, but number one, practically speaking, Christ says, "Listen, m- muzzle." Like last week, remember he muzzled the demon? The word was muzzle. Same thing or similar thing going on here. What's going on is practically, okay, when Christ is being proclaimed, not just by demons, but by other people as Messiah, as Lord, that carries with it certain political connotations that would have been confusing for the people because remember, as we've probably all heard somewhere or another for a large, for a for a large portion of these Jewish people they were expecting the Messiah to come even the disciples at times have this mindset they were expecting the Messiah to come with chariots and with 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 swords and they were just going to do conquest and destroy everybody all of their physical enemies they were just going to Christ was going the Messiah was going to come and just wipe everyone out and they're going to they're going to join that and everything's going to be good militarily so number 1 is he's trying to tamp down the confusion. Um, He's also trying to perhaps um, keep Rome out of the business for a while. Because he doesn't want Rome to come and try to shut things down yet, right? Um, Number two, though, and I think this is probably more to the point, but if you read Isaiah, so a lot of times Isaiah identifies the Messiah as a servant of the Lord. And so this is especially when you get to Isaiah uh, 40-ish all the way to the end, you're going to see the Messiah spoken of as the servant of the Lord. And when he comes, he's going to come with a certain amount of hiddenness, kind of under the radar, And so when you're thinking about who Christ is and who Christ personifies from the Old Testament, and there are a lot of types of Christ in the Old Testament. We saw last week with David, right? Christ is the the greater David. Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the greater Moses. All these things. The other thing, though, is that Christ ultimately, as far as who he identifies with or how he identifies with someone from the Old Testament, is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah, And Isaiah always emphasizes also in the Psalms, a few of the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms that speak of the Messiah, Psalm 17, Psalm 27. They speak of uh, the servant of the Lord in terms of hiddenness. So it makes sense, right? So he's flying under the radar. I mean, word's going to get out. You can't help it. But at the same time, it's like, hey, let's try to have some crowd control here. Number three, though, and I think this is also very true, miracles, pomp, coercion, can never change a human heart. You see, all these people that are coming to the door and getting healed and having demons cast out of them, where are they whenever Christ is crucified? They don't believe, as far as we can tell. So just because... And and here's the the thing right here. The reason it's concerning when people think, oh, Christ's main thing was to heal people, or they have these healing campaigns and everything. The problem with this is that When I start thinking that the objective of Christianity is for Christ to make my life more comfortable by healing me, that goes against everything that Christ came to explain about Christianity. It's the opposite of that. When you become a Christian, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. That's what Christ says. Remember when Christ is out and they're like, Christ, I want to follow you. And he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, and I don't have anywhere to lay my head. What's he saying? You want to follow me? It's going to be challenging It's going to be, expect warfare. All of these guys, in fact, remember Mark is written for Christians in Rome who are being persecuted and set on fire, right? So Christianity is not about having Christ come in and, and, and making life easier for you. Now, in a sense, it is better. It is easier for sure spiritually, right? It's definitely better spiritually because we know that the God of the universe is working in us and that, in a sense, all of our sufferings on earth, all of our trials in life, are used for the glory of God, and they're used to make us become more like Christ. I was reading something. Um, let me read this poor man. I sent this to uh, to uh, to David from uh, from Wheatfields. But we we're talking about suffering of some of these guys, like like uh, Martin Luther, and some of these guys that had horrendous lives physically. These reformers and church fathers. I mean, they suffered physically ailments. That it's like man. So this is John Calvin. For most of his life, I mean, this is it's, all right. For most of his life, um, he was made miserable by hemorrhoids, and I'm going to spare the details, but there are details there. At one stage, he had kidney stones and infections, discharging purulent urine, and suffering from painful renal colic. He also had painful gout, and sometimes had to preach sitting down. He was. Um, always taking an immoderate degree of aloes for a stomach trouble and required frequent enemas. His spleen was enlarged. He had periodic facial pain. Possibly there's a lot of uh, science words here. Um, I hear we have a vet in the house, maybe so maybe or I think maybe even dad's eyes. I don't know these science words though. Neuralgia. He suffered from heartburn, indigestion, roundworm infestation, migraines, nervous dyspepsia, chronic insomnia, recurrent hemoptysis, something like that. Um, the guy was. And this was like most of his life from from about thirty five to the end of his life, about twenty straight years you know they said somebody said that Calvin actually had a chronic migraine for twenty straight years. How'd you like to have a headache for twenty years straight right so it's to say you're talking about a a in a sense we would say a hero of the faith Martin Luther's the same thing right but just because you become a Christian, it's like where was the healing for this man? where was the healing for Luther where was the healing for well you also read their writings. And it was in the midst of those troubles that they felt the greatest joy. That they could go to God knowing that, hey, all of these trials and all of these sufferings that I'm experiencing, they're bringing me closer to the Lord. They're helping me grow in the things of God. So it's not to say that it's not... you know. So in a sense, it it does help to become a Christian. But in another sense, you have to look at the motive here. And so part of this is when Christ comes... You know, the concern, I think, would be this. Disciples, I don't want you thinking that the call is not to suffer. If you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to suffer. Yes, I'm over here healing everybody. Yes. But at the same time, don't confuse what's going to happen. And don't see this as just because you suffer does not mean that I am not with you. You see the danger there? Just because you suffer doesn't mean you lack faith. Sometimes it's the faith that needs to be growing through the suffering. That's a good thing. And so there's, there's, um, there's a lot of danger here, but everything, when we see these things about miracles, because, you know, it's like this, right? And then we're, I, I have three points here of application. Okay, number one, we already saw, service to Christ. Okay. Number two, though, Christ is a great physician. And Christ can. So I don't want to downplay this, right? Christ can deliver you from your infirmities. He can heal you, for sure. He still heals people. Um, But here's the thing, right? And not only that, but notice what's going on. They press this door. They go to Him. They flood. They stream to Him. And we should have that attitude. We should. It's not to say that just because we're suffering, we're like, oh, you know, God put this on me, so He must... No, I can still go to Him... And pray and cry out to Him to have relief, to have help. Whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's whatever. Grief, depression, anything that comes up in my life. Headache, right? I can go to Christ knowing He's not going to turn me away especially since I'm a child of God. You know, it's one thing for them to come to the door. Most of these people, I'm assuming, I mean, we have no reason again to believe that they're even saved. How much more do you have reason to go to Christ knowing that you are going to hear something from from God? You know, and I'm not saying like a verbal word, but God is going to be there in your midst and helping you through that situation. So that is the thing. So I don't want to downplay it to the extent where you're like, you know, all miracles are bad. No, the miracles are good. The miracles have some kind of implication here, and for us as God's people, we have something here to tell us to go as like these people to be like a continuous stream, constantly going to Christ with our with our wants and our ills and everything going on in our life, even Thanksgiving, of course, Thanksgiving and everything like that. Um, and He will not turn us away as His people. Okay, and then uh, and then lastly, though, here's the thing: don't forget, and this is, you know, sense, what the gist of it is, but we can't forget what Christ's main mission on earth was. Um, The healings and exorcisms are meant to demonstrate his victory over Satan. That's what this is about. It's not to make life easier, although for them, of course, it made their lives easier and better, in a sense. But if they didn't turn to Christ once they were healed, the judgment would be greater now that they were healed and they still didn't come to him. So they can actually turn out to be a curse, but the point is, is that when we're thinking about why is Christ doing this, Christ is proclaiming, Christ is demonstrating that he has power over the enemy, that he has power over evil, and that Satan and the demons have no ability to come and, like they did with Adam, like they do with us, tempt and meddle with us and, and, and uh, weaken us and things like that. With Christ, it doesn't work. And that's the whole point, because he is our Savior. Um Here's the here's the last thing on this though. When you have a Christ who is coming, if you think about how the gospel is advancing here, so each one of these realms where Christ is going, this town right here, think about this town. You have demon-possessed people. You have illnesses, you have diseases and make, you know, there's no doubt about it. These things were not part of the original creation, disease and death and evil and grief and things like that. So these things are evil, for sure. And so, in that sense, they are satanically induced in a way, right? But it's to say this when Christ comes, he is coming to renew or restore creation. He's coming to restore us, he's coming to restore the creation. He's coming to, in other words, when he comes, the same principle applies. I know we've mentioned it here, but whenever you have like a church that's been planted, what's happening is that the spiritual realm is being messed with, we're tampering with it. And on a large degree, wherever the gospel goes and it flourishes in a certain nation, the demons scatter, they flee out of those nations. And then when the gospel leaves that nation, the demons, the demonic realm, the darkness comes back. Why? Because Christ is the light of the world, who has power over the darkness. And so on an individual level, every single person who's been converted has been converted and, and, and in a sense, snatched out of the, the demon's grasp, out of Satan's grasp, and claimed for Christ. And so if you think about, you know, just in here, all the people that have been claimed for Christ in here, and now we come and we worship this Christ, and then think about the impact, man. Every single one of y'all, think about how many, at least two dozen people in every single one of our lives, individually here, that you are personally connected to, somehow, on on a regular basis, right? Interacting with, seeing, talking to, on a regular basis, at least, every single one of us, at least two dozen people that nobody else interacts with in this room. So when you go out into the workplace or you go out in the family environment or you and you are you are you are literally the the, the temple of the Lord and you're going out there right and Christ is with you and you have power because of the power that Christ gives you because of the gospel the gospel is the power of God and you think about how many now what are we talking here we, we have like I don't know 30 something people here times 20 600? 600 600. Right, And then by God's grace, some of those people get converted. They come in. And what happens? They go and they do the same thing. And pretty soon you have this, you have this spread. It's like, it's like leaven. Like the kingdom of God. When we talked about the parables, it's leaven. It goes out. It permeates a, a society. It permeates a, a community. For the good. Not for evil. And so as we're thinking about this, consider this. Okay, One of the ways that we ourselves, we're not Christ, we're not miracle workers... But we, in a sense, are called to do what Christ is doing here. Christ is going to certain areas, and demons are scattering. Demons are fleeing. Think about just like abortion ministry. You know, Logan does abortion ministry. He's very involved in that. When that's happening, what's going on? The demons are flying. The demons are scattering. The demons are fleeing. Why? Because that is a stronghold of Satan, right? And so wherever there's evil in this culture... We're not called to just sit back and just let it do its thing. We're called to to rise up and speak out against it and do things and be active against it, to bring it down, to tear down strongholds. Not with swords, not with weapons, but with the means that God has given us spiritually. Prayer, preaching the gospel, communicating truth to lost people. That's how we do it. Imitating Christ to lost people. All these ways, right? And in doing so, the kingdom of Satan is being thwarted. It's coming down. And it can start right here. You know, it happens in this community in Clovis. And so that's the hope, you know, that this doesn't stop 2,000 years ago. It doesn't stop when Christ ascends. Remember, he says, you'll go and do greater works than I have because you have the Holy Spirit now. And so although we're not miracle workers, in a sense, Christ is still using us to see demons cast out, demons scattered, the kingdom of, of Satan being undone, being crushed, dismantled as the kingdom of God advances. So that's the hope. And that's the encouragement, that your life has significant, significant meaning. Because you are not only, look, you are somebody who carries around the precious truth of the gospel. Right? You have something that casts either judgment on somebody or blessing. The gospel brings blessing, but it also brings brings judgment. If they don't believe it, judgment's going to be heaped on their head. If they do believe it, they're going to be saved. Demons are going to scatter. So see this in light of that and be encouraged because Christ, His work doesn't stop and, and we're, we're carrying it on by His power. So let's pray. Give Him the praise. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You that we have uh, such, not only a high priest, not only an advocate, but we have we have a, a, an example here of, of the power of God and salvation. We thank you that Christ is a compassionate, uh, merciful, patient, gentle Savior. We thank you that we see here that, that he does not turn anyone away, especially his children. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us to go to him in our hour of need, in our moments of need. We pray that you would give us grace to believe that, that God is, that you hear our prayers and that you answer our prayers and that you love us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would also help us to see um, how significant this life that you've given us here is, Lord. There's a reason why you have not called us out of this world. There's a reason why we 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 aren't with Christ right now. And it's it's to advance your kingdom. It's to be vessels. It's to be used by you on earth, Lord. And and so we pray that you would help us all. Help help the 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 all of us lord the guys at work the the mothers at home or at work or with their children help help us with our families help us with our neighbors the lost people everything that we do lord help us in these areas to be to to be people who not only follow you lord but 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 people who go out and and speak out against evil to not compromise lord help us to not be afraid of the wickedness and the evil that's going around help us to take a a a stand for truth a stand for your word not not for the sake of causing trouble or riling things up lord but because we know that that you tell us to that you tell us to expose evil and and to um, to be people who tear down strongholds and so help us in that help us to to do that in this community bless this community lord all the the people who are lost in our homes and our lives and our neighborhoods lord bless them have mercy on them open their eyes to the truth bring them into the faith lord we pray that you would use us to do that we thank you for this day where we can praise you we can worship you we can be reminded that you are king of kings and lord of lords that you have cosmic power over all things that you demons and illnesses and uh, weather and everything in this life lord that you control and that you're sovereign over all these things and so we praise you that we we worship today the sovereign god of the universe we pray all these things in Christ's name amen now let's go ahead and stand.